Thank you, Rich, for the kind words and encouragement. Um, those notes are much sweeter than the Danish. Oh, and I like Danishes a lot, so that's saying, saying something. Thank you guys for that. I know um, it encourages me, encourages my wife, and it is a privilege. It's a, it's a privilege. I was actually reflecting on that this morning, um, the privileges to shepherd you guys and the, the hunger that you bring each week. Um, both on Thursday nights and on Sunday morning. So it's a joy to study God's Word and live life together with you under the Chief Shepherd. All right, we're going to continue our study tonight through 1 John. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to finish up, or almost finish up this chapter tonight. And uh, if you've been here the last few weeks... You know that we've been hearing a lot about love, right? Yeah? You remember that? Okay, good. Well, since about midway through chapter 3 in this letter, John has sort of slowed down and he's parked on the theme of love. And in particular, he's, he's parked on the theme of loving each other, the love, that, the love for the church. We've even talked about that at multiple points tonight. How we treat each other is a huge deal for the Apostle John. Because it's a huge deal for Christ. John has taught us that as believers, we have tasted the love of God. And it's God's intention that we pay that love forward. That we love others the way that we've been loved ourselves. And he hits this again and again in different ways in this chapter, and we've seen it uh, for the last few weeks. So if you would, you've got your finger in chapter 3, flip back to chapter, or chapter 4, flip back to chapter 3. I want you to notice how many times he's commanded us to love each other. All right, I want us to see the forest for a moment. Look in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is the message. We need to love each other. Look down in verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And last week, our our passage began and ended with commands to love. Look over in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So what do you think John's emphasizing in, uh, in these verses? Love, that's right. It's pretty clear. Saying, okay, John, love is a big deal. And I think it's his goal that you walk away from this letter resting in God's love and that your life is radically marked by it. Now you might be thinking, wait wait a second, Clay. You've told us for the last 16 weeks that the purpose of this letter is assurance, right? So you're like, whoa, hang on. Now you're saying is that we know the love of God and we love like God loves. So which is it? Yes. All right? Yes. Knowing and resting in the love of God is another way of saying that He wants us to believe the gospel, the word of life. Remember? And that's the first way that assurance comes to us. It's when we rest in, we believe, we embrace the word of life, the gospel, or in these terms, knowing the love of God and believing it. And then, the outflow of that. Love for others. Love for others is the central evidence that we really have done just that. That we've rested in the love of God. It's the outflow of someone who really understands how God has loved them in Christ. In other words, for John, love for the church is the greatest, the greatest evidence that we know the gospel. That we love God 
and that we are not self-deceived about our spiritual condition. That's his argument. So it's another way of saying the same thing. John is about assurance, yes, and love, receiving the love of God and bending that out is another way of saying what he's already been arguing this entire letter. So, love is clearly a priority for John. The priority, um, you know, is, is central. It's, it's, it's the priority for him. And so I think we need to ask the obvious question. How many of you heard the message last week, weeks prior, and you went home, and you put, in quotes, be tenderized by God's love and show it at the top of your priority list for this week? How many of you did that? How many of you sat down, out of what we heard, and inventoried your life and said, okay, in these spheres, here's how I can practically obey this and make this the priority because it's John's priority. It's Christ's priority. How many of you sat down to determine, in particular, who you might love better this week? How you might begin to implement what we're talking about with specifics? No, no, I'm I'm coming down intensely right now, but I want us to think this through. If it's John's priority, it needs to be our priority, right? It needs to make it to the top of our list. And I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? Because you guys love each other well. You love our church well. And I see it here all the time. We had, many of you know this, we had three funerals this week. It's a lot of funerals um, in one week. A lot of heaviness. And there was one sweet old lady, I don't even know who she was, but she chased me down after the funeral to grab me to say, some young people came to my house and delivered one of those baskets, you know, around Christmas time. A number of you probably did that. She was, I was so blessed. And you guys came into her home, you encouraged her. And I was too embarrassed, I didn't even know who she was. I was too embarrassed to even ask her name. So I'm going to figure out who she was, because I know which of you went to see her. Um, But that, just, I hear things like that all the time. Things I don't even know you're doing. And people come up to me and they tell me, tell me how you're serving them. So I don't want you to, get the, to misunderstand what I'm saying. It's incredibly encouraging to be your pastor. It's incredibly encouraging to see how tender you guys are to the scriptures and how eager you are to obey them. But my heart is like yours. And I know what my heart does or is tempted to do in sermons. Our hearts are sometimes dull especially as it comes to following through from previous sermons. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking right now, wow, yeah, now that you mention it, I do remember what John taught us last week, right? I do remember that love is a priority, but wow, I went about all my week pretty much like normal, like usual. Left Thursday night, and I lived my life like last week's sermon didn't really even impact me. If that's you, and it's been all of us at some point or another, Uh, Let me just encourage you. John knows that learning to love like Jesus, that takes time. It takes a lifetime, really. And John knows that God's people come to know his love and believe it more and more deeply over time. He also knows it's challenging to go against our own sinful inclinations. We want to preserve ourselves at all costs, don't we? It's self-preservation, the self-gratification, selfishness in general is just instinctual to our old man. We don't have to be taught how to do this. It comes naturally to our flesh. And even when we're stirred in the moment of a sermon, even when we're awestruck by God's love for us, we're utterly convinced of our need to bend it out toward others, even when that happens, it often doesn't stick, or at least it doesn't stick like it should. So what does John do? John is a very faithful shepherd. and He knows the intricacies of our hearts. What does he do? Well, he keeps talking about love. <laughs> over and over and over in these paragraphs. He keeps talking about love. He keeps on piling on the teaching about love. God's love for us, our love for others. And John is he's starting to remind me of a story that I once heard about a a new pastor. This pastor's, you know, fresh on the job of this church and everybody's excited. 
He arrives his first Sunday, and he preaches an outstanding message. Everybody comes up to him, man, that was great, like super impactful, you know, really good. Second Sunday, he comes back, he preaches the exact same message. People are like, what? Is he like confused? Like what happened? Did, did he forget what he taught? You know, there's, they're surprised, probably puzzled, naturally. But they're like, he's new. Like, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. They came back for his third Sunday, and he preached the exact same sermon. And at this point, the congregation, they, they had begun to talk amongst themselves, like as he was starting with the same intro that he'd started for the past two, you know, Sundays. And like, is something wrong with this guy? You know, they're like, you know, talking to each other. And after the sermon, somebody had the gall to come up to him, and, and they asked him if he was ever going to preach anything different. And without even blinking, he said, sure, when you start obeying it. <laughs> now, don't make a direct connection to you guys, all right, with the parallel here. That's not, my, that's not my point. I'm not saying you guys are not obeying what you hear. But my point here is love is tough, all right? And making changes come slowly. So John repeats this central theme again and again in different ways. He adds various nuances to it, and he does that throughout these chapters. He wants to drill it into our heads and hearts so that we love like we've been loved. So tonight, as we continue on and and finish up chapter 4, John's going to keep pressing us to love each other. And that's where this passage is sort of rushing to, the end of the the chapter here in chapter 4. Notice how the chapter ends in verse 21. It's sort of the conclusion to his argument. It's where everything is headed. He says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this is, I don't know how many... How many times he's commanded this already in the letter? This is like sixth or seventh time he's commanded this. So this is where it's all headed. In other words, our paragraph tonight, uh, we know that everything John says is headed toward this goal to promote love, to get us to love each other more and more. And so next week, we're going to actually slow down and look at this. It's going to be a really practical message on loving in the church, like how we love each other in the church, ways we can do that better. Um, so we'll, we're going to get there. But to get us there, we don't want to skip over these verses 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. Because John wants to put wind in our sails. He wants to give us m- some more motivations to obey this command to love. So I'm calling tonight, you ready for it? Anticlimactic. My clicker's not working. You've got to help me, Luke. Oh, no, and he's not back there. All right, I'll just tell it to you. Oh, there he goes. There it is. Even more motivations to love. What do I need to do with this, Luke? He's coming. All right, he's always bailing me out. Luke is always... Johnny on the spot. <laughs> oh, are they dead? I don't know. Yeah. Probably. All right. It's probably operator error. It could be. There's no power button on it, so you can't just turn it off. What he said. You can't turn it off and on. There it is. All right, let's give him a hand. Always coming in strong. All right. So, love. That's what we're talking about. Everything's headed toward this command of love. And so what he's doing, he's motivating us to, to love. All right? He's already given us a lot of motivations in previous weeks, and now he's just adding more to them. He's adding more to the till. All right? So this first motivation um, in this passage spans several verses, actually, and we could say it like this. Love for the church reveals that the unseen God actually dwells in our church. When we love each other, we get after it in the body right here in Boundless and in the wider church body here at Timberlake. That shows something. It reveals that the God who no one has ever seen, John says, this unseen God It reveals that he dwells among us. 
So look with me in verse 12. John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So, love for the church, when we love each other, this reveals... John's saying that the unseen God, He actually dwells in our midst. He dwells among us. He dwells in our church. Now, as we read through this passage, you might be wondering, okay, I see that maybe in the, like the first clause, but how does the rest of what you just read relate to your point? Maybe you haven't even thought that far ahead. All right? It seems like when we read this, he's saying a lot of different things. He first talks about how love shows that God abides in us, you know, in verse 12. But then he starts talking about the Spirit, kind of out of the blue. Then he starts talking about the testimony of the apostles and then confessing Jesus and, and how, that, how that shows that we abide in God. And then, So how does it all fit together? Well, if you're asking those questions, uh, just let me encourage you for a minute. I spent a large part of this week asking the very same question. And here's my conclusion. I think all these verses are connected in John's mind and they have to do with love revealing that God dwells in the church. And maybe we could say it like this. These verses that seem disconnected, they're all part of John's argument. They're all part of his argument of how we can know that the invisible God, the God that we cannot see, how we can know that he dwells among us. How we know we're on the right track. We know that God is pleased with our ministry. How we can know that the God whom no one has ever seen actually does live with us. And the ultimate answer, John's ultimate answer, is by the fact that the people in that church love each other. Now, let me get a little geeky on you guys and show you how all these verses argue this point. All right? I'm going to do this. Can you see that? That's verses 12 through 16. All these verses are making this point, and I just I want to show you, I want to help you observe the text so we can see kind of where this is going, and then we'll draw some implications, all right? So, hang with me. Can you all agree to hang with me? All right, good. I know it's late, getting late. At least late for me. Maybe not for you guys. You guys are like, the night is young. All right, initially, I want you to know I want you to see how verse 12 talks about two related themes. You ready? God abiding in us. There's number one. And then His love being perfected in us. So these are two related themes. It's kind of like a little thesis statement. He's saying love, if we love one another, it shows us that God abides in us and it's the means that His love is perfected in us. So it's kind of like a mini-thesis in this little paragraph. Abides in us. You see that? And perfected in us. All right? Just turn backwards. You can see it back there pretty good. You guys got my view. Thanks for the heads up, though. The red bulb is out. Wow. Man, we are working against the odds tonight. All right, so hang with me because this is, this is important. Whoa. <laughs> it's getting worse. I can't do this without the screen. Yeah, I need a whiteboard now. There it is. There it is. That's okay. We got it. Luke, Bobby, man, man of the hour, okay, 
All right, we'll see. There's a lot of colors on this, so we'll see how it, how it goes. <laughs> you might just want to stay up there, Luke. I'm just kidding. All right, so he unpacks the theme of, of abiding in verse 13, and then the theme of love being perfected in us um, through, the, through the rest of the, the, this section. So it starts actually in the next verse. It's not on the screen, verse 17. So maybe we could show it kind of like this. All right, so there's the abiding theme. He's going to unpack that theme, and then he's going to go around. Pardon the crude illustrations here, okay? He's going, to get, he's going to start picking that up in verse 17, this other theme of his love being perfected in us. So do you see that? I know you're probably saying, so what? But does that make sense? All right. So he unpacks his first theme in verse 13, the theme of God abiding in us and how we can know that he really does abide in us. John is very concerned with how we can know that the invisible God actually dwells in the church, especially because no one has ever seen this God. So he keeps telling us of how we can know that God abides in us. All right, so look at this. See if they've got a yellow bulb. Oh, kind of. So God abides in us. You see it there. Next one, by this we know he abi- we abide in him and he in us. Down here in verse 15, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, he in God. And then down here at the bottom, the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So again, the point here is you can clearly see he's unpacking this idea of abiding. They're all related. That's, the, that's what strings this together, the theme that strings these verses together, even though they seem disconnected. And next, I want you to notice how he bookends this initial abiding section with the theme of love. All right? So, why is this important? Okay, because he seems to talk about different things here. He's talking about his spirit. He's talking about testifying that the Father sent the Son. He's talking about confessing Jesus is the Son of God. But I want you to see in verse 12 and in verse 16, he bookends it with these themes of love. I don't know if you can see that. It's in blue. Love one another. Nope, can't see it. I'm, gonna, this, this is, I'm taking this into account. All right, for next time I do a color PowerPoint. So we got a nice, nice blue color there. That's about it. All right, so he, do you see the bookend? Do you know what I mean by bookend? Starts, yeah, front, back, good. Verse 12 and verse 16, bookending it with, these, with this idea of, of love. So the point that I'm bringing that out is that it's a clue that all of this section is together. It's sort of, it's connected, right? It's a package. And he says, our love for the church is how we know that we abide in God and God in us. So he gives us this thesis in verse 12, and then he starts to make his argument in verse 13, and he builds it all the way to verse 16. But here's the, here's the million-dollar question, all right? How does the Spirit, in verse 13, the testimony of the apostles, in verse 14, and the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, in the next verse, how, how does that all fit together? How does that flow in the argument? It's clear that they're all related that, to God abiding in us and how we can know that He does, but how does it flow in this text? So you've got Spirit, the testimony of the apostles, and the confession there. So how does that all come together? Well, I think what John is doing is he's showing the stages of how God's presence is confirmed in the church, which is ultimately by the love of the members. So that's the climax. The climax is the love. That's where he's he's headed. So if we love one another, that we see that God abides in us. So now he's going to build that argument all the way to verse 16 to show that verse 16 is that climax. Or we could say it differently. We could say, I, th- I think he's showing how love is the most visible and tangible evidence that God dwells in our midst. He's showing us how that love is produced in the body. All right? So we'll take them one at a time here, and we'll treat these pretty quickly. All right, first stage, and I'm calling them stages because I don't know what else to call them, but they kind of happen together. All right? But the first stage was, was what we would say is the gift of the Spirit in verse 13. John says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. John's saying that we know that God abides in us foundationally 
because he's given us his spirit, the spirit of the new covenant, the spirit that is the, the answer to all the problems that, we, that Israel had and that people before Israel had. We did not have God's spirit. But what does the spirit do? We looked at this in weeks past. He illumines God's truth to us, doesn't he? He opens our eyes to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. The Spirit enables us to believe in Jesus. And how does that truth about Christ, how does that truth come to us? Well, it comes to us through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, like John. So, John pivots in verse 14 to say that those very apostles have seen and they testify to the truth that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then he says, whoever confesses that reality, that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever confesses that, whoever believes their message, that's the evidence that God abides in that church. So, God gives His Spirit, verse 13, the Spirit illumines God's people to affirm the testimony of the apostles about Jesus. To affirm what they teach. To affirm the truth is another way of saying that. God gives His Spirit, verse 13, and then, this is implied, the Spirit illumines God's people to affirm the testimony of the apostles about Jesus. And so now we confess, that's testimony language, saying, well, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is God, just like, just like John teaches, just like the other apostles teach. And what's at the heart, then, of this testimony? What's at the heart of our confession of Jesus as God's Son? Well, at the heart of the message, we, see, we saw this last week, at the heart of the message is the message of God's love for His people. It's God's love for us. And so John writes in verse 16 that we've come to know and to believe this message. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This message is the message that God is love and He loves His people. And so anyone who has believed this message, anyone who has been loved by God, will come to love the church. And that's how John comes full circle in this argument. This love among the members. That's that third stage. That's the climax. The one who abides in love, John says, or who continues to love in the church, he shows that he abides in God and God in him. So I know that feels like a lot, so let's pull it all together. How does this group of people called the church, how does this group come to love and thus manifest the invisible God? First, God gives His Spirit. Then that Spirit illumines the Apostles' testimony, and we confess Jesus. Confessing Jesus means we've come to know and to believe that God loves us, and because we do, we love each other. And so, by our love, we reveal that the invisible God really does live among us. It's an unbreakable chain. The Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, faith in the truth, and love for the saints. The gift of the Spirit, faith in the truth, and love for the saints. All right, you can take a nice deep breath because that was the most complicated part of our passage. (laughs) But his point is clear. When we love the church, this shows the invisible God dwells among us. That's the point of these verses. Now, it might be a simple statement, but it's a staggering thought. John is saying that how we behave toward one another, how we live toward each other, that will either confirm or deny the presence of God among us. Do you see that? This cuts against the grain of how most of your friends would evaluate whether or not God's presence is manifesting in a church. John's greatest evidence for God's presence in a church is not 
is not how emotional we feel when we sing in church. Although that's great. That's not what he says. He also doesn't gauge God's presence by how big the gathering is. Is that what he says here? It's not. He definitely does not gauge it on the wild manifestations of the Spirit. Healings, exorcisms, tongues. What's the greatest and most tangible evidence of God being in the building and is pleased with our worship? What is that? Listen, how we behave toward each other. It's how he puts his Shekinah glory on display in the new covenant. That's the dwelling language. God dwells with us via his spirit. This is the temple imagery. He puts his Shekinah glory on display by our ordinary and yet sacrificial acts of love for each other as we believe the gospel. Because the world doesn't know anything about this. And so when you come to Timberlake, I'm not saying don't get excited about singing your heart out. That would bless me as the music leader if you sang your heart out. All right? And of course it's fun when the ministry's growing. It's fun when people are coming. But those things can be misleading if they're in the driver's seat of determining God's presence. God is only present in a church if and when people are believing the truth and they're living lives that are transformed in love for one another. That's how you know you have the real thing. That's how you know the church is healthy, vibrant, and full of God's presence. So when you come, get excited for how you can sacrifice yourself for the needs of the saints. And look for ways to do it. Be on the lookout for ways to do it. We're going to talk about that more next week. And when you do this, you are showing that God really is in this place. So that's the first motivation to laying our lives down for each other. And this leads to the next motivation. John says that when we love the church, something incredible happens. He says that love for the church brings to fulfillment the full intentions, or intention, it brings to fulfillment the full intention of God's love. And you're saying, what, what do you mean? Well, look with me in verse 17. By this, namely what he just said, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. All right, so by this, love is perfected with us. That's what we're keying in on. Verse 17. John's saying that when we love others, that's the by this part. So by this, when we love others, by this, he's looking backwards. When we love others, it completes the circuit of God's love, so to speak. The ultimate goal, the, the end goal of God setting his love upon us is to change us from being selfish to being selfless. That's this perfected in love. By this, God's love, the love that he's given to us, is, is perfected. Or a better way to say that is, is brought to completion. Finds its full intention. His goal is to transform us. From being inward to being outward, like Him. From being easily offended to freely forgiving. He's given us His love, and when we take that love, and we love others with it, and in the same way that He loves, when we do that, we're completing God's original intention in loving us. And John's language here is very provocative. He's almost implying that God's love is incomplete, until you learn to love. Now we know theologically there's nothing incomplete about God or His love, but the way He says it here is, is meant to raise that tension in our hearts. Like, whoa, this is His intention for us. We have to love. 
When he says love is perfected in us, he's talking about God's love being made complete in us when it flows out of us. We're completing that circuit. The point that John is making is that merely receiving his love is not the final goal. In other words, you getting saved, that's a glorious thing. But God has only just begun with you. Now it's time for a complete overhaul of everything about you. How you think, how you feel, what you want most, what you value, what you think is important, what you're willing to give up. He is committed to making you like Himself, to overhauling you to love like He loves. Be careful. It will likely cost you and it may cost you your life. So let's just let's take let's do a thought experiment. All right? Hypothetical. Let's say you're, I don't know, into vegetable gardening. Just pick something. Anybody, any of you know me? You're like, oh no, here he goes. Time to talk about gardening again. Spring's coming. I'm excited about that, and I'm getting ready. I'm building raised beds. I spent time reading about soil health, microbiology. Yes. I planned out what I'm going to grow. I even bought a massive and fairly expensive deer fence. <laughs> I've been composting all winter long. I'm ready to go. I prepped this baby. May rolls around. What would happen if I never plant anything in the garden? What? I wouldn't get any vegetables. And you all would say, that dude is stupid. He spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of thought in this garden, and he never planted anything. Why did you go to all of that trouble? Not one seed? Well, in a similar way, when God saves us, He has prepared us to love. To not actually teach us to love would leave His purposes unfulfilled like an unplanted garden plot. But you can be assured that God is going to plant the garden. And He's going to teach us how to love because that's the whole reason He saved us and left us here. And that brings a massive implication. That implies then that we need, we must align ourselves with His agenda to make us loving people. Because if we don't, it's going to be a tough life. So is learning a top, is learning to love, is learning to love a top priority for you? Can I say that God cares more about the quality of your love than your major? He cares more about the quality of your love than what vocation you choose. Even what spouse you choose. And I'm not saying those are unimportant decisions. I'm just highlighting the importance of love. He, has, he is ordaining everything. He's ordaining every trial to teach you to become like Him, to teach you to love. And so we have to get on board with His agenda. And this is so important to Him because our love for others, it actually brings His love to completion. And that is a huge incentive to get after loving the bride of Christ and being willing to persevere through all those hindrances we talked about last week. And when His love, when that love is perfected in us, life gets really good, which is kind of the opposite of what we might think. You know? We think if we start loving people, that means we're going to get hurt by them. We're going to start losing precious time to do what we want to do, like garden. We think our lives will be miserable. Well, that's not what John says in, the, in these next verses. He says when we start living lives of love, 
that our very lives will have a confidence, a joyful sense of expectation of what awaits us on that final day, of everything this earth and this life is pointing toward and sort of ushering toward. And that's our third incentive. You can say it like this. Love for the church gives us confidence for the final day. It grows, maybe that would be a better word, it grows our confidence for the final day. Look with me in verse 17. John writes, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what's John saying in these final verses? Or in these verses, they're not final, I guess. He's arguing that when we bend out God's love, we grow in confidence because we're resembling Jesus. It's kind of the crux of the argument. When we bend out God's love, we grow in confidence because we're resembling Jesus. This means we see that Christ is active in our lives and that we really do know the Lord. As a result, we can head toward the day of judgment with confidence. So what is confidence? Well, it's the opposite of what he describes as fear. And in particular, the fear of, quote, punishment in verse 18. The only other time this word punishment is used in the New Testament, it's uh, not good. It's used of eternal punishment, or hell, and it's the opposite of eternal life in Matthew 25, 46. And this fear is a fear that God is going to punish you eternally for your sin. The sin that you know that you deserve to be punished for. It's a fear that every unbeliever has deep in their heart, whether it's acknowledged or not. And even some genuine believers may have this fear at times. So why then is this fear resident in people? Where does it come from? Well, John tells us. He says, It's because these people have not been perfected in love. Verse 18. They haven't been perfected in love. Now that phrase, maybe we could translate it like this. It would probably be a little bit better. Perfected by love. Perfected by love. Meaning that love is what matures us or perfects us. And love, he says in verse 17, is, is what casts out this fear of punishment. Love casts it out. It kind of takes it by the collar and sort of throws it out the door. Love does that. So love is the means by which we are matured, perfected. So that brings us to the major question then. How does love perfect us? How does love mature us? Or in what sense does love cast out fear? What's he talking about? Well, I think from the context, what we've already looked at, it's pretty obvious. He's talking about as we love others. As we love others. John's point here is that when we love others, we can know that God's love is working in and through us. The conduit is open, right? That we've received God's love. And then our confidence grows. In other words, our love for others keeps us from self-deception. It keeps us from like a false assurance. We're claiming to know and love God, and we just hate our brother. John says if you do that, you don't know God. So then, this means that if you've tasted the love of God in Christ, if you've tasted His love for you, if His love has tenderized your heart to the point that you love others, you have a reason to be confident. We're not talking about perfect, like the, the, you never hate someone or have a, an ill feeling toward another person. I'm talking about if there's any spark of love that's motivated by the love of God for you, that is good. That is a good sign. and You have reason to be confident. As the Lord teaches you to deny yourself and to love others, our great joy is that our confidence in this life right now will grow. Fear of judgment will be cast out because we know our Father's heart of love and we're living lives that mimic the love that we've been shown. 
And this confidence is a, a tremendous gift in life. But if your heart is afraid, if you're hearing this passage and you're thinking, Clay, I fear God's judgment all the time. I fear being cast into hell for my sin. Like, that's me. Well, if that's the case, be very careful at this moment. Now, don't misunderstand what John's saying here. John is not saying that we love in order to avoid hell. It's not what he's saying. He is not saying we love people so that we avoid hell. To frantically and fearfully try to love other people so that your conscience is clear, so that you're made right with God, that is not the solution. You can't love your way into God's favor. You can't love your way into His pleasure. What you need to do in this moment is to come to the end of yourself. It's not to love more. It's to realize your puny efforts at love elicit God's wrath. You've only ever actually earned His wrath. You've only ever displeased Him. And even now, this frantic anxiety reveals that you have very hard thoughts of God. So what do you need? You need to open your eyes and see Him as He is. You need to see Him as the God of overflowing love. The God who is ready to bless His enemies. The God who is eager to be merciful. The God who delights to fill your mouth with the richest food. And the God who delights to do it all at great cost to himself. As a complete gift. But you must empty your hands. You must receive his love as one who does not deserve it. As one who never will deserve it. You must realize that you are naked, blind, and poor, spiritually speaking. You must let him clothe you, give you sight, and enrich you. You must bring your anxious heart to rest in His promise of love toward you when everything in you is screaming, I don't deserve this. Just take that to its final end. You don't. And you never will. When you've received His love with empty hands, You've wrestled your heart to the mat and your heart is settled there. When you're trusting only in his promise toward you, now and only now are you in a position to love. Now and only now are you in a position to grow this confidence that he's talking about appropriately. You cannot love with His love if you are not trusting His love. You can't do it. It's anxious toil. You will not bend out the love of God until you are resting in the love of God. And that's how these things go together, and that's exactly where John goes next. It's our fourth motivation to love. He says, love for the church is based on God's prior love toward us. Love for the church is based on God's prior love toward us. Verse 19. We love because He first loved us. You could underline that verse. And that's like the sweetest, simplest crystallization of, of what John's been saying. We love because God first loved us. 
The only reason we love, in other words, the only reason we go on loving is because God loved us. And what does it say? He loved us when? This is important. First. He loved us first. Now there is a ton packed into that word. He loved us first. A ton of so many things. Confidence, joy, peace. A bottomless ocean full of those things by that word first. That he initiated in love toward us. So let's flesh this out a little bit about what Scripture teaches on God's initiating love. All right? How did God, how has God loved you first? If you believed in Jesus, he's loved you first. So let's think about this. Ways that God has loved us first. Well, God has provided our salvation by his own initiative. So he, he set it up for us. He's given it, he's provided it to us at his own initiative. I put Romans, I put just some texts in here so you can, this is just one illustrative text, all right? God sent Jesus, Paul says in Romans, while we were his enemies, while we were still sinners. In his love, God supplied his son as our righteous substitute. He earned our righteousness that we so desperately need, and God put him forward as our propitiation, as the one who bore all of God's wrath for our sins. And all of that, from start to finish, was before we ever loved Him. So He loved us first in that He provided for our salvation at His own initiative. But it gets even more intense. God not only provided it, but He also sought us out. He offered us salvation at His own initiative. Ephesians 2.17 In that text, I love this text because it gets overlooked often, but the Bible describes Jesus as personally coming to us and preaching peace to us. So whoever taught you the gospel, whoever came to you as your mom or a pastor or somebody on the street, and they described the gospel to you, that was Christ was behind them, and He came. Jesus came and preached peace to you. Personally. And note that we were not seeking Him. He came and sought us. We were the lost sheep. He came to find us. In this way, too, He loved us first. But not only did He provide it and offer it to us in in preaching, He also applied our salvation at His own initiative. By His own initiative. He applied it to us. When you heard the gospel, when you heard it, you exercised faith, didn't you? It's not a trick question. You did. You trusted the gospel. You trusted Jesus. You believed. You reached out and you took the offer. But why? Why in that moment, why not earlier, when you heard it previous times, why not later? Well, the glorious thing about the Scriptures is that it takes us behind the scenes, so to speak. It tells us that God granted us repentance. It tells us that God graciously even gave us faith, which is why we believe. I just cite one example up there, but when we were dead in sin, God took the initiative to make us alive in Christ. We were dead, total inability, and God, the text says, made us alive. God did that. We're like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened our minds to understand the scriptures, Luke 24. We're like Lydia in Acts where it says God opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And she subsequently believed. We're like the Jews in Acts 2 that describes their hearts as being cut 
God circumcised our hearts when the gospel was preached and we responded in faith, repentance, and obedience. So in a most profound way, if you've believed in Christ tonight, it's because God loved you first. But there's even one more way that God has loved us first. And God has decreed our salvation by His own initiative. Or He's planned it. He destined it to be so. By His own initiative. Paul writes in Ephesians that, quote, He, that's God, He chose us in Him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's a significant scope. Shows us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I think that's one of the widest scope verses of all of Scripture. In love, he goes on to say, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Whose will? His decree. His will. Who's doing the predestining? Him. How is He doing it? He's doing it in love. In love. Now this is a great mystery, but Paul is teaching here that the reason our salvation came about is not merely that God made a game-time decision to grant us faith in the moment. No, He did grant us faith in the moment. What we just said. Number three. But it's not merely that. No, in a profound and mysterious sense, in a way that's hard to get our minds around. I get that. But He's always loved us. It was not a game time decision. It was an eternal decree. Your salvation was lovingly planned before He ever created the world. The moment of your conversion was lovingly and mercifully designed before He ever placed the sun in the atmosphere, in the solar system. To be chosen by God is to be fiercely loved by Him. Colossians 3.12, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. To be chosen is to be loved, according to the biblical authors. To be chosen also means that we have absolutely nothing to boast about. It means that God, it does not mean, it does not mean that God is somehow unfair. The scriptures say he's perfectly just in all of his ways. It definitely doesn't mean that God is to be blamed for evil. The scriptures say that he is good and he does all things well. So anytime our hearts are tempted to pit one truth about God against another in the name of logic, we have to stop. You're a creature. You're not the Creator. There's a line, and God has revealed things to us, and then He said, go no further. Or to put it in Paul's terms, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Why have you made me like this? Instead, we should receive this truth by faith and let it have its intended effect in our lives and our hearts, which is, to show us how loved we are. To show us how secure we are in the Son. We should receive this truth with gladness and joy that God in sovereign mercy chose us to reveal His eternal love. So, in the most profound way of all, God has loved us first. And I've talked to many of you as we've worked through this letter about um, John's sort of quiet confidence that comes out in this letter. You know what I'm talking about? And this is why he has such a quiet confidence about you. Because he knows that you're in the sovereign hands of God. 
He knows that you are a recipient of his initiating and unrelenting love. And the more we understand this, the more we come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, the more we will love. Our love for each other springs up from God's love for us, is what he says here in this passage. It's based on, it's rooted in God's prior love of us. And this is arguably the greatest motivation to bend out this tremendous love of God to others. All right? So this brings us to our final motivation that John provides in this passage. He says, we'll be quick here, love for the church reveals that we really do love the unseen God. Verse 20, we really do love the unseen God if we love the church. It shows us that. Look with me in verse 20. It says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So love for the church, it reveals that we really do love the unseen God. And in a way, John's sort of rounding off where he started with his emphasis on the unseen God. Can I look at point number one? You can see that in that heading. He's kind of rounding off that that emphasis. But here, John's helping the church to see that if we can't love each other, if we can't love the people with visible needs right in front of us, if we can't forgive, if we can't have hard conversations, even though we feel awkward, If we can't do that, if we can't make sacrifices for each other, then we most certainly don't have any love for the God that we cannot see. That's what he says. But the positive side is also true. When we love each other, like John's encouraging in this passage, we can know that we really do love the God we've never seen. We can know that our claims to love God, and we sing about it on Sunday, we talk to other people about it, we can know that that's not just like rank hypocrisy. Because we're actually loving the way God has modeled for us and commanded us to love. Our claims of love, in other words, are valid or validated. John's essentially saying here that loving people in the church protects us from deception from claiming that we love God when we really don't. And it's easy to be deceived. That's what sin is. Sin is deception. As love gets hard, as it gets costly, we're forced to run back to the God of love. We're forced to believe His gospel even more deeply. We're forced to remind ourselves of His great love for us when we least deserved it because we need some motivation. Because when you've been talked about, when your name's been drugged through the mud in the church, it's not easy to love that person. So you need motivation. So where do you run? Back to the God who loved you. We're forced to remind ourselves of His great love for us when we least deserved it. And even now, when we still don't deserve it. So we gather up that truth, we bring it to bear on our hearts, and then we head back out to love those people that we otherwise could not love. We head back out to love them afresh. We head back out to have those conversations, whether they deserve our love or not, because that's how we have been loved by God. And John implies that this whole process keeps us from self-deception. This active love for other believers, it keeps us from fooling ourselves into thinking that we love God when we really don't. And it assures us positively that God has placed his love in our hearts. Pretty good incentive, right? To uh, 
to get after what he commands us to do in the last verse of this chapter. He says, and this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So five motivations to love the church. Five more motivations to love the church. He's already given us a lot in these passages. John knows that we need them. That should be an encouragement to us. So don't neglect them in your own lives. Don't neglect these motivations that fill your sails with wind to bend out God's love in the most difficult of circumstances. And next week, we're going to look practically at, at how to love. What does that look like right here in the body? We'll give you some ideas on what we can do, how we can, how we can excel still more in that. And again, I just want to end this evening with an encouragement. I see you loving the saints here. You all should have great confidence. Great confidence that God's, God has been at work in your heart. He is continuing to work in your heart. I see a lot of love flowing out from this group. And all I'm saying tonight is excel still more. All right? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way that you inspired John to um, be such a careful shepherd of our hearts. We confess, Lord, that we are weak in our love for one another, and yet there is a spark. Um, There is fruit that we see. We praise you for that fruit. And we pray that um, as we go from here, as we spend time with each other, as we talk about these things, that we would be deliberate to think through the areas of our lives uh, or an area, just one area of our life where we can increase in our love for um, each other, our family, our roommate scenarios, our, our workplace, And in so doing, that we would just reveal the unseen God, that you live well among us, that you would draw people to yourself as they see our love for each other, that they would know the gospel has power to transform as they see us doing the humanly impossible. We know that you delight in this. We know that it completes the circuit of your love and that this this is your agenda. This is number one on it for our lives. And so we we thank you for that. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We pray that you would help us to love well. In Jesus' name, amen.